Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, you'll find the, um, the notes and the outline in the bulletin. Luke chapter 4. And this week we enter into part 2 of what will be a three-part section of the book. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 44, constitutes one unit. And frequently, authors will give literary clues to help you identify a unit, and one of the ones we've seen Luke use repeatedly is that of the inclusio, where you begin and end with a similar phrase or theme, making it clear everything that goes in between are one unit. And so, in Luke 4, verses um, 15... No, 14 and 15, I'm sorry. We read, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Then, the end of the section, we read, verse 42, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So he's preaching in the synagogues of Judea is how chapter 4 ends. Our section begins with that. And everything that follows, I think you'll see, is one narrative. Um, we're meant to see it as one unit. So we're looking at it over three weeks and three parts. I'd like to just read verses 14 to 30 right now. Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there are many widows in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst... He went away. 
And next week when we continue looking through this section, we'll see Jesus do the very miracles they're asking to see as the section comes to a close. But this morning, we're going to see this, this conflict come to a head. It's remarkable. Our text begins with people speaking well of him, people being amazed at him, right? Verse 22, all spoke well of him. Verse 15, he was being glorified by all. So all are glorifying him and all are speaking well of him and they're marveling at the gracious words. That's verse 22. And yet by verse 29, they are trying to kill him. How do you account for that? How do you take a crowd and and get them from marveling and speaking well to a murderous rage in just a few verses? So what we're going to look at this morning is the question of who do you think you are? I think think as we work through this, we will see that that's really the question Jesus is posing to them. And as they get it and as they understand what he is saying, they decide they will kill him. Who do you think you are? I'll pick it up with some overlap from last week. Point one, verses 22 and 23, the people's mixed response. The people's mixed response. We pick up at least three things from their response. One, they marveled at his gracious words. They marveled at his gracious words. I mean, understand, Jesus is the word of God, and here is the incarnate word of God reading the word of God to them You've got the most skilled language user in existence communicating to people. No wonder they marveled at his gracious words. But more than that, that phrase gracious words links back to something even earlier in the chapter. If you remember, chapter 4 begins with Satan tempting Jesus. And when Satan tempts Jesus to turn the stones into bread, Jesus responds by quoting a part of Deuteronomy 8.3. I want to read the whole to you. Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus responds to Satan when he's being tempted to turn the stones into bread. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, And he humbled you, Moses, speaking to Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And there's a very strong verbal parallel here to what Luke has just said. They were marveling at the words coming out of his mouth. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this passage in Luke's, are very similar. It, it seems clear that Luke is intentionally making this connection. Just as Moses taught Israel that the, the Israelites must learn, first and foremost, to depend on God and his word, the people were picking up, here is this gracious word coming out of Jesus' mouth, just like the word that Israel needed to trust in God. They're coming out of Jesus' mouth. The very words of God are being spoken. They marveled. They marveled, and they spoke well of him. And yet, point B, they stumbled. They stumbled over his familiarity. We saw this last week, didn't we? I mean, you can sort of sympathize with it. Jesus has just claimed to be the Lord's Messiah and the Lord's Savior. The passage he quoted in Isaiah 62 in verses 18 and 19 are clear. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. And the the English word anointed is simply a translation of the Hebrew messiah, which we get messiah from, or if you translate it into Greek, becomes Christos, which we get Christ from. Messiah Christ and anointed are Hebrew, Greek, and English for the same word and the same concept. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has made me his Messiah is what this text is saying. And Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of this passage. He is the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. And he's the Savior because not only is this one who has received God's Spirit to proclaim a message, but also he is to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He is to do the saving. He, He announces a salvation and he accomplishes a salvation. And Jesus has the bold audacity to look at people who grew up with him, who, who knew him since he was a boy, says, here in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. And they stumbled over that. They stumbled over the familiarity. I think, I think we can sympathize with that to some degree. In fact, a parallel account in Mark goes a little further. Mark 6, verses 3 to 4, they said, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They stumbled over his familiarity. On the one hand, they recognized his speech and his words were like nothing they'd ever heard. And yet, here in front of them is is Jesus who, who grew up with them. And, and Jesus here fills in the last bit of the response, because that's just what they say. But Jesus, I think picking up on the mood of the crowd, Jesus functioning as a prophet, tells them what they are thinking. And so he also tells us what they are thinking. And Jesus says in verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So what's that proverb about? This proverb is actually a, One of Jesus' favorite proverbs. He quotes it frequently. It's in all four Gospels. And it's it's really a simple proverb that that, uh, that was clearly well known to them. Physician, heal yourself. Basically, it's something put up or shut up. If If you want to be my doctor, I want to see you heal the cut on your arm first. If you want me to take your prescriptions, you want me to follow your counsel and your advice, I want to see your own medicine work on you first. Make sense? Fair enough. I mean, if I went to a doctor and he was ill and he was telling me how he could cure anything, I'd be rather suspicious. And so they're saying, physician, heal yourself. Do the works we heard you do at Capernaum. Now, Luke hasn't mentioned any miracles. This is the first mention of miracles, but his sort of vague statement in verse 14 and 15 certainly could include that, that he's going about or reports going about about him. He's teaching in the synagogues, being glorified by all. So apparently... Jesus is working miracles. He's, he's entered into that phase of his ministry. And in next week, we will see him do just that. And again, I think we can be somewhat sympathetic to their desire for miracles. The, the, the blank here is they demanded of him signs and miracles. What they're basically saying is, okay, that's a pretty lofty claim, Jesus. We're going to expect, we're going to demand a certain amount of evidence. And if you give us that evidence, then we may, after all, accept you as the Messiah. So, so why don't you, Jesus, do for us, perform for us those things that we've heard you do elsewhere, and then we will be the judge ourselves of whether or not you are, in fact, the Lord's Messiah. I, th- I think we can sympathize with that, if, if not agree that that is right. I think in us, we can recognize that same sort of desire. So that's their mixed response. They marveled at his gracious words. They stumbled over his familiarity, but they demanded of him signs and miracles, which brings us then to the response. And here, in verses 24 to 27, in one speech by Jesus, a crowd goes from being mixed, but generally favorable, to a murderous rage. 
what is going on? And that's, let's dive into the meat of this section. Jesus' prophetic rebuke. Jesus' prophetic rebuke. It comes in three points. He quotes another proverb. He gives two biblical pictures or illustrations, and then we, we see his point. So let's read this. He said to them, verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the times of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So first, Jesus responds. And the reason I call it a rebuke is this. He is not pleased with their response. He is, he's correcting them. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, I can understand how you'd want to see some signs. I don't really want to do that today, guys. No, he takes them head on. And they understand that. I mean, he's creating, he's bringing a crisis to a head. Last week I said, you can't stay ambivalent about Jesus for long. And Jesus repeatedly brings, brings issues to a head. He forces people to decide where they stand with him. He has no interest in lukewarm followers. And so here he brings the issue to a head and he says to them, first off, is proverb, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And, and in that, there might even be some sort of concession to the, the difficulty of, of accepting grandiose claims from somebody you know, somebody you grew up with, somebody familiar to you. It's just another one of these proverbs that's frequently on Jesus' lips. In John 4.44, as he leaves the Samaritans to go back, it says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And again, I think we get that. But then he moves on to illustrate his point with two pictures from Scripture. And I think it's worth our time to, to take a look at them. So turning your Bibles to 1 Kings 17. We're going to look first at Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and Elisha and Naaman the Syrian. I'm sure these are stories that for many of you are familiar. Let's take a brief look at them and spend the majority of our time trying to figure out what is the point Jesus is making. Because get the logic. Jesus starts by saying, I know what you're thinking. You're, you're, you're thinking, hey, Put up or shut up. Do the works you did that we heard you do in Capernaum. Do them here for us now. And then he says, truly, it's not a surprise. Prophets aren't received in their hometown. And then he quotes these two illustrations. And just in quoting these two illustrations, the point he's making that they pick up on, that they get that he's communicating, drives them to want to kill him. So it's probably a good starting point just to read these stories. Now, Elijah shows up on the scene out of nowhere in Kings. Um, he just shows up. Ahab is the king of Israel at this time, and Ahab has led the nation in, in, in whole into the worship of Baal. And consequently, Elijah proclaims a famine, disciplined by God on Ahab and on the nation, and then we read in verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat of it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but just 
first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So, God sends Elijah outside of the land of Israel to Zarephath, which is part of Tyre and Sidon. If you remember when we were studying through Zechariah, Tyre and Sidon was on the north of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean and this was the city that that God predicted through the prophet Zechariah would be destroyed by Alexander the Great as he went south down to deal with Egypt. These are are historic enemies of Israel. These are Phoenicians. She's a pagan. She's a Gentile or you'd assume she's a pagan but somehow, we don't know how, this woman has become a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. How do we know that? In verse 12, she says to him, as the Lord, and remember in your Bible when you see Lord with all caps, that is the divine name, the tetragrammaton, that's Israel's covenant name for God, not a general term for God. She knows the special covenant name of the God of Israel. And she says to him, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. So somehow this is a, a Yahwehist. This is a follower of the God of Israel. We don't know how word got out to her, but God has her here and he sends Elijah outside of the land of Israel to her. And she's in dire condition and he gives her a promise. A promise that if she'll take what she has and and, and make food for him that God will provide for her. And she believes that promise and she obeys and gets supernatural provision. Okay. Let's turn a couple pages to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 5. And just rehearse, remind ourselves the story of Naaman. And then we'll spend our time trying to figure out what to make of these two accounts. Naaman is in 2 Kings chapter 5, another famous Bible story. Um, makes a great story to tell the kids in, in children's church. You get the flannel graph up and, you know, it's, it's wonderful. And actually, I was reading this this week with Daniel. There's some amazing details in here. I, I made me chuckle. Um, let's just read it. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman went in and told, um, Naaman went in and told this his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant that you may cure him of leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive? This man sends me word to me to cure a man of leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel thinks this is just a, a, a stunt to provoke a fight. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me. He may know there is a prophet in Israel. Now, 
Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. I just chuckle. Naaman's got his whole expectation of what this should look like. And the guy's going to be waving his hands. And, you know, it's going to be something dramatic. He doesn't even get to speak to Elisha. Elisha just sends a servant to him. Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to him. He's got this great train of donkeys carrying the gold and the changes of clothes. And he's making a big deal. And he's got letters from the king. And Elisha just sends out his servant. My master says to go bathe seven times in the Jordan. I'm not even going to go with you. Just, just go do it. You'll be clean. And Naaman gets angry. <laughs> this isn't what he expected at all. And this, this isn't the type of treatment he expected. I mean, he's a big wig. He's a big guy. And then his servants speak wisdom to him. My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. Let's turn back to, to Luke 4 now and try to make sense of this. What is going on? So to recap, Jesus reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Jesus claims personally and in that moment to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He is the Messiah. He is the one who announces salvation. He is the one who accomplishes salvation. The people are ambivalent. This was a great speech. We've never heard these gracious words before. This is a wonderful thing. But after all, we know him. He's Jesus. Jesus then responds by anticipating what they're going to say. They want proof. They want miracles. They want signs. And then he says, truly, prophet's not received in his own town. And then he gives them these two stories, just reminds them of these two biblical accounts. And the point he's making shifts them from a sort of semi-positive ambivalence to a murderous rage. What, what is his point? I think it's at least four things. One, one, God and not man is sovereign. God and not man is sovereign. What, what do I mean? I think the fundamental dilemma, the fundamental problem, the fundamental thing Jesus is rebuking is their audacity that they are the ones who get to sit in judgment on God and his prophets. They demand signs. They will sit. They will evaluate Jesus. Okay, Jesus, perform. Show us your credentials. We've got Messiah tryouts, as it were. You can, you can make your case, and we'll pay attention. We'll pay good attention. We'll watch, and if you impress us, perhaps we'll sign on. And one of the things that's striking in both of these accounts and, and Jesus' explanation of these accounts is, you can see it in Luke 4, the divine passives. This is God acting. And what's unique in both these stories, what's, what's identical in both these stories is God is the one acting. There's all these widows in Israel. Now we know from scripture that God has a heart for the widow and the orphan. How much more so when the widow and the orphan are, are now in, in a land of famine? I mean, widows and orphans survive by charity, 
people's generosity. But during a time of famine, people don't have extra to be generous with. And the poor and the widows, they take it the hardest. So if there's ever a time where the compassionate God who loves the orphan and the widow would, would, you'd think would send a prophet to widows in Israel, now be the time and he doesn't. It's Jesus' point. God is sovereign. God decides. God, you don't dictate terms to God. God dictates terms to you. The heavens were shut up. Elijah was sent. The Syrian was cleansed. None of the widows except Tezarephath. None of the lepers except Naaman. Jesus is making the point in their, their demand for evidence. Guys, you got it wrong. God is sovereign, not you. God decides where he's going to send a prophet. God decides where he's going to work miracles. God decides who he will reveal things to and whom he will not reveal things to, not you. God is sovereign, not man. In Luke eleven twenty nine, the same issue is coming up, people wanting a sign. Jesus says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You don't get to demand things of God. As reasonable as it might be for us to understand why they'd like to see signs and miracles, their demand for it, I mean, they've heard the report. It's not like they have no evidence. They, they, they do what you did there, do it here. No. Read your Bible, he says. God is sovereign. God chooses where and when he sends prophets to whom he pleases. Point number two, closely falling on the heels, the reason that's the case is because God owes you nothing. God owes you nothing. This is Jesus' hometown. I mean, surely if God's got a Messiah in Jesus and he's working miracles, surely out of all places, Jesus would put on the greatest show for his hometown. These are the people he grew up with. There's some sense of perhaps a privilege. If you did it over there, then you need to do it over here. If you're gonna work miracles for the people in Capernaum, then we demand you work miracles for us too. Be fair. No. God owes you nothing. God has a heart for the widow and the orphan. He does not owe the widow and the orphan anything. That's why he can send Elijah out of Israel, out of all the widows and orphans there, to a Gentile widow because he is free and sovereign and because he owes no one anything. We wrestle with this. We, we want God to be fair, don't we? We wrestle with God's unfairness. I mean, it's... it's evident that certain people get more light, certain people get more access, certain people saw Jesus in the flesh, other people didn't. Paul gets an personal appearance of Jesus on the road to Damascus. I didn't. But understand that when we say that salvation is by grace, that word grace is at odds with and completely antithetical to obligation and debt. If God owes us saving, and whatever that saving is, it isn't grace. So we celebrate grace, but the flip side of grace is we don't have rights. We don't get to demand things of God. If you want to argue God owes us anything, he owes us wrath. He owes us judgment. God sends prophets not because he is obligated to. God sends his Messiah not because he must. Because of his free, gracious Loving kindness, he chose to send Jesus. 
And the people in Jesus' hometown have no leg up spiritually. They have no um, inner access. God is sovereign, not man. And God owes you nothing. Else it would not be grace. Jesus makes this same point a little later in Luke in chapter 13. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them. Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the others in Galilee because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, this, the assumption of Jesus' um, questioners is, if you're a relatively decent person, then towers shouldn't fall on you, Right? So what bad thing did these people do that God let the tower fall on them? Nothing. They're no worse sinners than anyone else. God doesn't owe you to protect you from towers falling on you. Unless you repent, you too are to perish. That's what Jesus says. We we, we live in this expectation that God owes us something because after all, we're pretty nice people. I mean, sure, we got some rough edges. I mean, some of us more than others. But... Yeah, we're relatively decent people. And then we ask questions and and people write books like, why do bad things happen to good people? That only ever happened once and he volunteered for it. There's only one time in human history something bad happened to a good person. It was on the cross. Everything else is grace, but we start with man being so important. And then we wonder, well, that's not really fair that God didn't send that miracle here. And if only God could come and talk to me in my living room and we could have a cup of coffee, that... God's sovereign and he owes you nothing. Marvel at his grace. Understand, it's grace, it's not debt that God saves and that God sends down his word. Point number three God saves the poor, captives, and blind. God saves the poor, captives, and blind. Jesus just said that, right? In verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's no word in there about God sending good news to the rich, the good. And last week as we studied this, we understood that Jesus is identifying the people in his synagogue as the poor, as the captive and the blind, which, which means that the poverty he's speaking of is spiritual poverty, just as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The captivity he's speaking of, unless, he's speaking, unless the doors of the synagogue are locked shut and everyone's a captive inside, he's talking about spiritual captivity, people who are slaves to sin. The blindness he's speaking about, the spiritual blindness, he says to his disciples elsewhere, blessed are your eyes for they see, blessed are your ears for they hear. Jesus' hometown synagogue were not ready and willing to admit their blindness, their poverty, and their captivity. That's the other thing we see from Naaman and the, the widow at Zarephath. She's a widow. She's got no pretensions. She's got no um, bling, nothing to be proud of. She's a widow and she's starving. And Naaman, Naaman's a great, powerful man, but God has to humble him first, and he's got leprosy. 
God, God's, God is saving, Jesus just announced, God is saving those who are willing to recognize their poverty, their weakness. And that's the other point in these, these two examples where God sends a prophet outside of the land, in one case, and, and a Syrian. I mean, Naaman was, was a, someone who did raiding parties on Israel. I just want you to imagine, like, you know, raiding parties regularly coming over from Canada. And it might be a stretch, but imagine it, Zeb. And not just raiding parties, but taking captive, kidnapping children. That's what happened with Naaman, right? He had, in one of his raiding parties, he had taken captive a little girl. Now, this, is, this is a public enemy to the nation of Israel. This is a threat. This is one of the bad guys. And God freely chooses to cure him. He humbles him. But part of what Jesus is saying to his hometown, not only does God only heal and save the poor, the captive, and the blind, you've got to recognize that, that you are the poor, the captive, and the blind. What he's saying to the people in the synagogue is you, you've got to recognize that you're just as needy, and you're just as dirty, and you're just as broken, and you're just as weak as a Phoenician widow or a Syrian leper. You starting to get why Jesus' hometown didn't like this message? Well, let me explain you saying what I mean when I say I came to give good news to the poor, the captives, and the blind. I mean people like Naaman. I mean people like the Syrophoenician widow. And I mean that God will sooner save people like them than he will self-righteous people like you, says Jesus to his hometown audience. You starting to get where the anger came from? Finally, point four, God saves the humble and the faithful. God saves the humble and the faithful. He humbles Naaman, doesn't he? The widow starts humbled. But Naaman, Naaman gets some anger, doesn't he? In, in 2 Kings, Naaman's angry because he had expectations. Just like Jesus' hometown had expectations, he had expectations of what he was expecting to see in a prophet. He, he expected, first of all, that the prophet would come out and meet him personally. He just comes to his door. Here I am. He's got his, his entourage. And the servant comes out. Yeah, the boss told me to tell you to go over. We're not even going to go with you. Just go do it yourself. Go bathe yourself seven times in the Jordan. You'll be good. And they refuse payment as well. We don't, we don't, need, we don't need your money. And Naming is angry. What's his anger rooted in this? Rooted in pride. I'm a big, important person. I have expectations. You're not what, this isn't what I expected it to look like. He expected some sort of like Harry Potter thing, you know, where he would come out and wave his hands over the place. I mean, there's got to be a show. There's got to be some drama. It's kind of anticlimactic. He gets angry. Just like this crowd will get angry. But thankfully, he's got some servants who give him good counsel. My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not go and do it? He's actually said to you, wash, you will be clean. And notice, in both cases, both people are given a mighty promise of God. The widow is given the promise, you will not run out of food. You and your son will not starve to death. Naaman is given a promise, you'll wash and be cleaned. Now, the terms for both of them are kind of hard. The widow's got to take the last of her food and give it to this guy she just met. Naaman's got to humble himself. He's got to go get washed. His servants are going to wash him do this. It's the... Jordan's kind of a muddy river. It's kind of embarrassing. They just watched their boss get snubbed, as it were. Naaman swallows his pride. He believes the word of the prophet. 
And then he sees the miracle. Then he gets the blessing. The widow takes her food, and against every motherly instinct to protect her child, to protect herself, she gives it to the man of God, and then her supplies do not run out. God saves the humble. God saves the faithful. And that's Jesus' point. God is sovereign. He sets the terms, not Jesus' hometown. God owes you nothing. And God will only save those who recognize their poverty, their captivity, and their blindness. No one is too poor, no one is too weak to be saved by God. Many are too strong and too wise and too rich. God will save the humble and the faithful. So how does his hometown respond to this message? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. The peoples, we see finally, furious retaliation. They're going to get him for what he just said. You don't get away saying stuff like that here. It's tragic. Naaman began angry when his expectations weren't met, and yet he humbled himself. He was cleansed. And these people do not humble themselves. I just want to say three things, three warnings for us in this. Because, of course, when we said this last week, this offer of salvation that Jesus read in Isaiah 61, it's, it's still on the table. There is still good news to preach to the poor. There is still liberty to proclaim to captives. There's still sight for the blind. There are still people that God is offering to set free who are oppressed. The year of God's favor is still on the table. Jesus accomplished it in his life and his death. And God is still offering this. But the conditions are still the same. God, not you, is in control. God owes you nothing. This is a gift of grace. It's a wonderful gift of grace. God didn't send his son because he was obligated to, because he had to, because somehow it wouldn't have been fair if he didn't. It's just free-flowing, sovereign grace. But likewise, God requires that we recognize our spiritual poverty, recognize our slavery to sin, recognize our blindness, humble ourselves, and exercise faith. That's what God's calling us to do. But I want to see why they didn't so we can guard ourselves. Three things. Self-entitlement hates Jesus' call to dependence. Self-entitlement hates Jesus' call to dependence. If you think you got rights, you think God owes you something, then even the message I'm giving this morning might be angering you, just like Jesus' audience. I don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear about God not owing me stuff. I want a God who owes me. I want a God who jumps to. When I ask for blessings, by golly, he gives them to me. Self-entitlement hates Jesus' call to dependence. The gospels, one of the, one of the messages of the gospel is you have nothing to offer God of any value. All of your best deeds, all of my best deeds are filthy rags. If we are to be saved, it will be by free grace, not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, not because we're good enough or nice enough or cute enough or lovable enough, but because of who he is, his love and his grace and his disposition and all of our sense of self-entitlement. Why has God let my life turn out this way? Why did God let this happen? Implication. He, he better ex- do some explaining to me. 
that sense of self-entitlement hates the gospel call for utter dependence. B, self-centeredness hates Jesus' call to humility. Self-centeredness hates Jesus' call to humility. Naaman thought he was a big and important guy. He thought it should be all about him, and when he shows up, he has expectations, they're not met, and he gets angry. And again, the gospel goes back to the message that it's not all about you. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God sent his son for you. But ultimately, it's about him. What's the good news of the gospel? You get to go be with God. And in the gospel, in dying on the cross, Jesus brings untold glory to himself and to his father. But our self-centeredness hates Jesus' call to humility. Jesus Hometown audience sure did. There was no way on earth these circumcised religious people were ever going to recognize and admit that they were on the same level as a Phoenician widow or an Assyrian general. There's just no way. No way, Jose, were they going to put themselves on that level. Were they going to humble themselves and to even insinuate that they were as bad as people like that? That was intolerable. We'll kill you for saying that. How dare you say that I'm just as bad as, and think of the worst person you can think of. And yet the scriptural account is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve God's wrath and anger. There's none good, no, not one. That's the biblical account. But our self-centeredness hates the call to humility. Finally, our self-righteousness hates Jesus' call to repentance. Our self-righteousness hates Jesus' call to repentance. We don't want to admit that we're poor. We want to think spiritually. We're wealthy. We're insightful. We've, we've made progress. We, you know, I'm a very spiritual person. No, you're poor spiritually. Now, God says, come, come. I'll, I'll give you gold without cost, clothing, a raiment of salvation for free. Just recognize you're naked and poor and captive. And time and time again, people's unwillingness to do that is what keeps them from Christ. There's very few people I've met who, will admit that, who won't admit they've made some mistakes. But understand, it's a very different thing to think of yourself as a fundamentally decent and good person who time to time makes mistakes which I think most people I know would, would, would recognize, and the biblical account that the very core of my being is a fountain in my heart that just comes up with corrupt things. The heart is deceptively wicked and corrupt. Who can know it? And that I need a cleansing, not just on the outside, but I need a cleansing from the inside all the way out. Every part of me came into this world corrupt. Every part of me needs cleansing. And I need to recognize my poverty. I need to recognize my slavery to sin. I need to recognize my blindness. And then I just got to turn in pure hope that God will be gracious and count on him. That, that's, that's what Naaman and the widow have in common. Naaman has an incurable disease and he gets a ridiculous cure. Go, go bathe yourself. And he hopes against hope and he exercises faith and amazingly, he's saved. He's cured. The Phoenician woman is so close to starvation, she thinks this is really it. This is our last meal. I'm just going to get some twigs. We're going to eat this little cake, probably the size of a scone or something, and then we're going to die. And this guy shows up she's never met and says, tell you what, why don't you give me that little cake? 
But afterwards, you'll have all the food and oil you need. She believes. She doesn't see any miracles first. She believes. And then, God miraculously provides for her. Who do you think you are? That's really the question Jesus is asking them, the question he's asking us. Who do you, who do you think you are? Do you think you're decent people? Do you think you're good sort of folk? Or do you recognize that before a holy God, you and I have no rights are owed nothing. We're just poor, blind captives. And will we humble ourselves and turn to Jesus in faith? Because remember, that's the setup. He's, he, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm the one who sets free. He is implicitly offering to save them. He's implicitly offering to save us. He's, he's announcing that same good news to them and to us. And he's just looking from them and looking from us for that same faithfulness that we saw in the widow, that same faithfulness that we saw in the humbled Naaman, Okay, I'll believe. Okay, I'll obey. Okay, I'll do what you say. And if we'll do that, then we will see the salvation of God. I'm going to call the worship team up to sing our closing song. And I just want to close in a word of prayer as we prepare to sing that. Lord God, I just pray that by your spirit that you would humble us, that you would show us our need, that you would show us our nakedness and our poverty, not just to shame us, but to, that we might be saved. That we might turn to you in faith. That we might turn to you and trust you and be saved. Lord God, we just pray that there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, has not bowed their knee to Christ, that you would even now work in their hearts. Draw them to yourselves and, and guard anyone here from, from trying to negotiate with the living Christ. There's pardon freely offered if we will just turn and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.